Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for coming in today. I would like to give a brief welcome on behalf of the Royal Academy of Arts and the new institute in Rotterdam, who we have been collaborating with to deliver this event. It's a pleasure to have you here this evening for a talk where we take a closer look at how architecture can engage with automation and create inclusive, livable and socially aware cities in the 21st century. But firstly, I would like to apologise on behalf of MK Snelting, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today because of some uh, difficulties with her travel. So she is joining us via Skype, which we've set up. And we will begin with three short presentations or case studies that will provide you with a way into the topic. And we will then have two very short responses from our respondents, Susan Shipley and Grace Carr. And we will then move on to discussion phase of the evening. And we'll hope to leave ample time for questions from the audience at the end as well. Just to give you a bit of context, the, tonight's discussion is part of the Royal Academy's International Women's Day programme. So titled Feminist Futures, this combines a variety of events that explore gender, representation and equality as they, as they intersect with both architecture and art. This talk, while being part of our International Women's Day programme, it also links with uh, broader themes that the architecture pro programme at the RA has been uh, investigating this spring. S uh, inspired by Cedric Price's provocative saying, technology is the, is the answer, but what was the question? We are looking at how technology can challenge, interrogate, and contribute to contemporary and future architecture practice. Uh, in fact, if this is a topic that you're interested in, you might also want to join us on the 19th of March, where we discuss extraterrestrial architecture and uh, have a closer look at whether we can live on March, Mars and whether there's feasibility to that. Uh, we have speakers such as Rachel Armstrong, uh, Irene Gayou, uh, Jorge Manes Rubio and Victor Buchli. Um, and I would also like to quickly thank our, uh, our supporters, the Embassy of Spain, who have been crucial in delivering this event. And I would also like to thank Czechy Ceramics and the Drew Hines Endowment for Architecture, who make the RA Architecture Programme possible. And without further ado, I would like to hand over to Ellie Cosgrave, who has very kindly agreed to chair this evening. Ellie is the director of the City Leadership Lab in UCL, and she is also a lecturer in urban innovation at UCL. And uh, I will hand over to Ellie for a brief introduction. Cheers. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for being here today. I am a civil engineer by training. Now I currently study cities and how technology and um, architecture and urban design affects people's lives, about how it affects opportunities and restricts, op um, restricts opportunities for others. I am also a dancer and understand very deeply how dance and the arts create a, new ty a different type of knowledges, a knowledge from, this, from science and engineering. And I actually have a project going at the moment called Choreographing the City, where I am getting dancers or choreographers together with architects to um, explore how the different practices that conceive urban design, can, um, uh, what kinds of tools and techniques are used and what kinds of outcomes are created from those. So 
I am super excited to hear from the panel um, about how the arts might inform our understanding of cities and urban environments and how that might play out in an automated future. I hope that I can introduce Femke. Femke, are you there? Hello, thank you very much to receive me in this way. Uh, I'm uh, super sorry to not be with you because I think uh, it's um, I was very happy with this invitation. I think it's important to imagine automation as a feminist future. Uh, and I think it's even more important uh, to do this together, but sadly uh, not uh, in person this time. Um, so for tonight, I would like to contribute with something that is uh, not from uh, the, let's say, architecture of uh, the city, but of the architecture of the interior body. Um, and it's, it um, uh, comes through questions that emerged uh, from the project Possible Bodies um, and the way we have been asking about the, uh, the boundaries uh, that are performed in contemporary bi biomedical imaging. So Possible Bodies is what we call a disobedient research project. Um, it's been developed by Jara Rocha, a, a researcher from Barcelona, and myself uh, for a bit more over a year now. And with the help of many others, we work with and on the concrete and at the same time fictional entities of so-called bodies in the context of 3D tracking, modeling and scanning. In the hyper-computational environments of 3D, we see that intersecting issues of race, gender, class, species, age and ability start to resurface with vengeance. And I hope through this example from the world of biomedical imaging that you can be, uh, begin to see how this happens. So Possible Bodies works through an inventory of digital objects. So there's artworks, uh, interfaces, uh, vocabularies, games, all kinds of things. And while the project rotates along different situations, the inventory forms a shared context for conversations with people that have something at stake in 3D. So this can be architects, but also software developers or animators, and in this case, uh, for example, radiologists, but also uh, the software itself. In these computational environments, we find the probable often disguised as the possible. So what I mean by that is that we, when we are presented with exciting features uh, such as endless zoom or infinite resolution and zillions of parametric variations, more often than not, it means that the conditions for what is possible are actually already fixed. And that same tension, we uh, the tension between possible and probably, probable, we find back in the context of biomedical Im imaging. It cr creates powerful political fictions and it provokes predominantly technocratic understandings of so-called bodies. So I think it's urgent we invest and infest these complicated spaces with feminist energies. Biomedical imaging today uh, centers around a group of techniques called tomography, where to tomos means slice. So it's the graph of the slice. And tomography is not limited to the images, imaging of insides of human bodies. The same technology is used in the mining context, for example, 
or it can be used to visualize the ge geometries of the galaxy. So it goes scales up and down. It sits in the middle of a booming industry uh, that uh, brings together hardware, software, flesh, bone, radiation, data processing, and of course the management of all of that. The point of tomography is to obtain stacks of two-dimensional data of the total density values of a volume at a certain time and place. If you project these 2D images back on top of each other, a pattern starts to appear. And it is this reverse-engineered computed pattern that forms the basis of most biomedical imaging today. The data acquisition can be done in different ways, like CT, for example, uses uh, X-ray exposures, so multiple of them turning around a body. PET scans uh, read from tracers that uh, someone has swallowed. An MRI uh, uses strong magnets and then measures the difference in speed between the activation and disactivation of the atoms that the magnet has excited. This is the most uh, high-tech version of it. However, the process of reconstructing, rendering and navigating the data is always the same. Stacks are dealt with in software environments where medical, medical image informatics, image processing and three-dimensional rendering can take place. Hospitals buy such software environment usually in conjunction with expensive hardware. But in research environments uh, where the, that do not re rely so much on clinically approved hardware, uh, some of the work happens through open source platforms such as 3D Slicer. So that's the software that rendered the video that you're looking at right now. It is through this door into the world of biomedical imaging, it's a small door, <laughs> that we are trying to understand the different processes at work. With all its claims to having a causal relation between the matter that it uh, interacts with and the resulting images, so that there's like like a um, one-to-one uh, -one relation between what's in front and uh, what is being rendered uh, afterwards. It is important to remember that these invisible insights are literally made visible. They are reconstructions, they are generative renderings, and they are super virtual. They are calculated outcomes of a non-invaded interior. Tomography is seen as non-invasive imaging. So no physical operations are needed to render the inside of, matter, of a matter constellation accessible. On the surface, tomography thereby breaks with the anatomical tradition of dissection that meant that the condition for looking would be the death of the subject. I mean, no other way than to uh, uh, operate on death, de dead bodies. But here, uh, so-called bodies can be accessed in vivo, alive, and then re-rendered on the fly. But the tradition of dissection invades non-invasive imaging through the back door. Each tomographic rendering is the result of a series of interrelated operations of separation and cut. First of all, these invisible insights are rendered as a data space. Uh, so that they can be fully accessible to vision, navigation, and instrumental intervention. 
they have become readable and eventually writable for further processing. Now, the tradition and, and late, sorry, following this, the traditional sagittal, coronal, and actual anatomical planes are automatically registered to the X, Y, and Z axes of the Cartesian paradigm. The anatomical perspective fits, and it's not a surprise, 3D modeling perfectly. What follows is the application of image segmentation, a set of standard, st standard techniques in computer vi vision to algorithmically separate useful bits and pieces of images from each other. But when radiologists use the term segmentation, they mean visually discerning anatomical elements. So these two understandings of segmentation start to work together. Apart maybe from insurance companies of the medical disciplines, radiologists embrace machine learning with the most enthusiasm. There is the hope to automate more of the processes of segmentation, for example, uh, by automatically detecting tumors. In addition, so-called deep learning techniques are used for the automated enhancement of images. The idea is to arrive at a greater resolution without the need to increase radiation dose. So, for example, with CT scans, you're still using X-ray, so it's important to try and limit the dose. So if you can hallucinate your images, then well, that's a good thing. These hallucinatory techniques, where information acts upon information, are firmly kept in check by pre-established differentiations between what counts as healthy or sick, as human or machinic, as in or out of place. Demarcating tissue types automatically at the level of single pixels and voxels, voxels is the 3D of the pixel, results in clearly marked volumes and structures and absolute divisions between organs, bones and tissues that, of course, here again, neatly follow the anatomical canon. It all works together to produce renderings with a sense of mathematical precision and medical evidence. Tomography takes the risk to reduce so-called bodies to their individual matter constellation. It separates them from the machinery around them, makes them movable, but divorces forces them from their own ryth rhythms, renders them without attachments or complications, and most important of all, with minimal agency. Being and becoming is brought back to the un uncontestable promise of wholeness at the end of the scanner's tunnel. The volumetric calculations that are responsible for the political fiction of these so-called bodies are infused with the modern heritage of perspective, of anatomic science and its classification, and of optimization and efficiency through computer science. Biomedical imaging prom promises endless possibilities of vision, but how to open, open it up for questioning its stable categories. The fictional character of all of this uh, technology is hard to argue for when so many regimes of truth and forms of, forms of validation are asserted at the same time. But with feminist techno-sciences, we have learned to insist on problematizing modern regimes and to the impossibility for life they produce. 
Automa automation here is used to construct a sense of objective truth, of real bodies that result from non-intentional, non-invasive vision. When joined with the normative generative features of machine learning, we know, we know to pay careful attention, especially when all of this operates within an industry that depends on seamless separation. It is difficult to know who, where, and how to ask about implications. There are computer scientists working on computer's vision. There are engineers developing hardware. There are mathematicians optimizing calculations. There are medical professionals clinically validating the images. And also subjects demand the confirmation of their condition through imaging. All of these elements legitimate and reinforce each other composing proba probabilities and path dependencies. So my question for you for tonight is how to participate in the reading and framing of these paradigms that manage and organize such techno-political systems without missing the opportunity to rethink conventional arrangements of nature culture and of our own implication in the modes of efficiency and worlding. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful um, example at a very small, uh, small scale of the body, which I think um, is relevant when we scale it up to cities where we have an interplay of many bodies um, mm -hmm. and an increasing um, uh, um, possibility and, uh, of engineering and, and a, um, a kind of technocratization of the city as well. Um, thank you very much for, for that contribution. I'd like to hand over to Marina now. Um, from the new school in Rotterdam. You're the head of the research there. So I also want to introduce uh, Katia Tarjen. Uh, we work both work at the new institute in Rotterdam, is the Dutch National Institute and Museum of Design, Architecture and Digital Culture. And um, uh, Katia is a media theorist, is a researcher there, and also uh, is curating uh, um, with me the, the Dutch uh, pavilion for Venice Biennial. Um, so we are uh, very happy to be here today because it's also an opportunity to discuss some of the questions uh, in which we are looking and we will be presenting at the pavilion. And we envision this, this project as a something that could uh, start before the biennial opens, but also expand after the biennial closes. We are collaborating with very different people around the world, not only in, in the Netherlands. So this is a good occasion to, to test some of the ideas that we are dealing uh, with and, and have your feedback from the, everyone, but also from the audience. So basically, uh, the project is called Work, Body, and Leisure. And what we are trying to do is to explore the spatial configurations, the living conditions, and the notions of the human body uh, that are a result of drastic changes in uh, labor ethos and conditions. And in particular, we are trying to understand uh, or foster new forms of creativity and responsibility within the architectural world in particular in response to emerging uh, technologies of automation. Obviously, because it's the Dutch pavilion, we wanted to make a reference to the Netherlands because we claim that it's a testing ground where the future of labor 
is being reimagined and has been reimagined over time. For instance, this is the uh, port of Rotterdam and is one of the terminals that is completely automated. And as happens with most of these spaces that are automated, are enclosures, are spaces that are confined, where most of the times the humans have restricted access, but also any citizen has probably not access to, and are huge spaces, are bigger and bigger spaces that are populating uh, our landscapes, and to which uh, we don't have uh, access to. Um, and this is a way to kind of enclose a space for its maximum productivity. Uh, so this is one, uh, but the Netherlands is populated by these spaces. This is also in Westland, where most of the greenhouses are uh, located, where there is production of uh, agriculture and flowers, uh, etc. So you can see in these images how the former space and the architecture of the farm is replaced by this endless landscape of these interior architectures of the greenhouses, these Cartesian, uh, also as Femke was saying, uh, spaces that are designed to maximize uh, the production and are mostly automated. And these are the interior spaces that are also aesthetically appealing. Uh, these spaces, again, where there are uh, climate control and they are designed for efficiency and they are totally independent from the climate conditions from outside and soon will be also independent from a human uh, being. So the question today was also, okay, what does it have to do with maybe feminism and, and if it can uh, lead to any utopia? And in this case, because it's also the realm in which I work, an architectural utopia. And of course, thinking about automation and architectural utopia is inevitable, also from the perspective of the Netherlands, to reflect upon the work of Constant, and in particular, New Babylon. That is this paradigm uh, for a, a completely a new way of inhabiting Earth, and that will be based, a society that will be based on leisure instead of labor. And that condition was afforded by the presence of automated technologies. So basically, all the base of uh, this endless city uh, will be populated by machines. And that will allow people, to uh, humans, to be liberated from the bondage of labor and dedicate its time to play, to game, and to redefine, continue to redefine their own environments while being in motion in a nomadic uh, way of life. What became as a, this utopian vision, and as the work of Constant evolved, uh, suddenly it started to be a more conflicted perspective. And in his latest works, uh, especially not that much in uh, architectural drawings or <coughs> models, but rather in painting, suddenly it started to happen. And these scenes of these spaces of New Babylon started to have scenes of violence. Um, in a way, uh, Constant realizes that the society that is organized not about around labor, uh, uh, around labor, but around leisure, not, doesn't necessarily uh, liberates itself from the idea of violence, but rather violence is inherited, is in, in a part of society itself. So we start seeing uh, at the beginning the models of uh, New Babylon the human figure is almost absent. But as uh, the work evolves, we start seeing more of these bodies that at the beginning are not really recognizable. And also these scenes 
of violence, like how this new technological order will also trigger violence and protests within it. So not everyone was happily living in this nomadic and playful environment. And the fact is that is somehow what uh, now we are almost experiencing. You know, these calls for uh, robots will replace the uh, work of humans. And in fact, this is uh, just an illustration of the work we are doing in Rotterdam, also analyzing the protests that happened also in, in the port uh, because of the replacement of many jobs uh, for workers, for workers. That in fact, these jobs have been uh, also substituted by other jobs but are completely different jobs. So it's also rendering the relation between uh, human and machine uh, differently. You know? um, we generally use this type of images when the, we kind of uh, discuss the relation between the humans and the machi machines. You know? and, and it is interesting that most of the times is the male uh, figure that appears in this tension uh, with the machine. But what is interesting as well is to understand that in order to gain agency, uh, the struggle for survival in, uh, in, in, uh, in the face of these uh, uh, industrialization processes connected to capitalism and now to neoliberalism, uh, we are struggling in many cases for uh, our own survival in many cases. Like these uh, fragile bodily actions uh, that perform in front of the machine render our bodies even more fragile. At the same time, what type of bodies are rendered or are created? What type of notions of bodies are created by this relation uh, with uh, the machines? And uh, obviously, in this process, it's inevitable not to think about the uh, datification of the body, but also, as Femke was saying, how it is visualized, how it is made uh, rationalized, and how it is represented, obviously has been, uh, Femke was also talking about um, the perspective, and obviously in this uh, work of uh, Durer, you see how is the female body that is represented and, uh, through this uh, idea of the perspective. And this is the work of uh, Simone Nikhil that uh, usually collaborates as well uh, with Femke and, and her team and is one of the participants in the Dutch uh, pavilion. And uh, she's doing research on how different softwares are being used for uh, creating efficiency. So how they are rendered their, and use the human body to implement uh, ergonomics and efficiency in the workspaces. So basically the human body is scanned, is certified, is objectified, and, uh, and then it becomes uh, avatars that are um, used in softwares for efficiency. And in these softwares are used to design uh, factories, for instance. So these are early experiments that were developed for 3D scanning and body scanning in uh, the University of Utah. And it was used this face of this woman, uh, Sylvia uh, Gurand, that was uh, used to, to, to map the face and the body of, of the female body. And this is Jill. Jill is the partners of Jack that are part of the Siemens um, ergonomics software that uh, use uh, databases of female and male bodies, or they create a standard uh, uh, 
human body, and they are used to understand what will be the uh, most efficient relation between the movements of human bodies and those of the machine for the design of factories. And what Simone Nikhil claims is that by doing that, by uh, actually designing architecture based on these uh, human bodies, or these ideas of bodies, we are ultimately also defining a particular type of architecture that is excluding many others that are not included in these parameters that are creating, in this case, Jill, the body of Jill or the body of Jack. So it's a process of uh, exclusion, but uh, this is one of the factories, for instance, that is part of the research. It's not in the Netherlands, it's in Shenzhen. It's uh, Ash Cloud. And here there is a coexistence between, uh, in this case, uh, the workers and the machines. And there are a series of applications and processes that are used to uh, create efficiency in the way in which movements are created. So if you do everything on time and you perform well, there is a rabbit that is very happy and tells you that is, uh, you are performing well. If it's not uh, happening that, there is a turtle that appears and tells you that you have to run uh, faster. But what is interesting is that it's not only the space of the factory when we think about automation. It's obviously the domestic space is not uh, alien to these transformations. And this uh, project that uh, is analyzed by Markus uh, Krajewski um, is this Electra Technovision kitchen. It's the first automated kitchen. And uh, what is interesting is in this case, um, the kitchen is not trying to liberate woman from domestic labor, but rather to support her in her uh, domestic labor. So I think uh, I have a, a quote actually. So it's the fully automated kitchen uh, that basically take it for granted the role of woman as housewife. Uh, it promised that the woman no longer goes to the individual appliances, rather the appliances will go to her. Um, so it's kind of this design of which woman continues to serve the male at home, but in this case, obviously assisted by, by the robot. This is obviously uh, illustrations that we are used to see in the Neufer, no? for instance, to how the spaces, architectural spaces are codified and are uh, measured and then applied in, in different spaces. And most of the times, as you can see, and the labor, domestic labor, is always performed by uh, female figures, uh, as appears to be here. But we would think that the, our change, the change of, from domestic labor and the space of the house to the space of the office will be uh, different. Uh, unfortunately, that's, that's not the case uh, uh, either. So Beatriz Colomina, also part of the, the project, is analyzing the bed as the site of uh, as a new factory, like with FAC uh, included, um, as a new place for uh, working. And obviously we have Hugh Hefner that almost never, um, uh, as Colomina says, left his apartment to, to work. But this space, all the domesticity where we cannot imagine out of uh, the idea of labor, of course, um, but also the idea of this automated um, body. And just here, uh, bringing some of the ideas that uh, Paul Preciado is also bringing to the conversation about this relation maybe uh, with these technologies of the body from the Panopticon 
to the idea of the bed as a site almost of work, to other uh, regimes in which uh, pharma pharmacological and pornographic um, uh, regimes that are also for the control and even automation of, of certain bodies. But thinking about the bed and the automation um, and the female uh, body, we uh, wouldn't like to take, not to take the opportunity to discuss an architecture that is particular uh, or at least um, has a very uh, long connection to the Netherlands, that is this case, the architecture of sex works uh, uh, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. So Katia will tell you a little bit more about it. Yes, thank you. So for centuries, there has been a perpetual swing between toleration and prohibition of sex work in the Netherlands. And this has actually resulted in very specific architectural typologies of sex work. Um, here in the red light district, you see an image of Parijs Helene, who was a very famous sex worker in the 60s. Um, and she is here in her house. So in the 60s, um, places for work and living were still separated. And the window was used to um, invite customers in. Um, this is a more recent example of a um, window brothel in, in Amsterdam in the red light district, um, where you see the, the regulated space with the alarm bells and uh, materials that can easily be cleaned. Um, so in the 1980s, um, sex work was more and more um, driven out of the city centers, uh, but it was still tolerated in regulated areas in the Netherlands. So here in Utrecht, uh, at the Zandpad, um, the typology of houseboats were installed, so car drivers could actually pass by and stop. Um, this is the interior. And at the same time, um, at the same time, unions for uh, sex workers uh, were started um, to fight, of course, for the rights of sex workers. For instance, with these T-shirts, we are all prostitutes. Um, um, and this regulation uh, of areas continued in the 1990s. So-called afwerkplekken um, or tipple zones were uh, introduced um, with desi designated uh, designed. Um, parking areas where um, sex work could be carried out in inside cars and they all had these uh, designed uh, rubbish um, cans with the city the, the logo of the city of Amsterdam and uh, a title which says Vrij Veilig which means quite safe uh, but also safe sex um, and more recently, in 2007, the city of Amsterdam started a project which is called 1012. It's the postal code of the, the central area in Amsterdam. And um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's meant to stimulate uh, uh, the economic revival of the city center, but also to uh, reduce uh, forced prostitution. Um, and what the city is doing is actually they are buying up a lot of window brothels and they are transforming them um, into uh, studios and offices for artists and creatives or cafes. But there's also other scenarios, of course, for the yeah. future of sex work. So um, there are different studies that point to the fact that um, the red light district could be populated actually by sex robots uh, by 2050. Uh, so it's uh, still early to, to develop uh, that, uh, 
that vision, but it's actually something that is uh, happening in other parts of the world, that there is these brothels in which uh, there are sex robots operating instead of like uh, sex uh, workers, human sex workers. And what happens is actually it's cheaper uh, to use uh, uh, robots than, uh, than have a uh, uh, woman even in, in certain conditions. Um, so these are some of the designs that have been uh, developed recently of uh, sex robots, even including uh, artificial intelligence and, and different uh, configurations. And again, how the, the body is presented and is uh, represented and is created and is uh, constructed. There is a foundation for responsible robotics based in the TU Delft, uh, one part of it. And uh, what is interesting to say is by uh, rendering the female body, uh, in this case, in, as a sex worker, as a, so, uh, this idea of, um, there is an ongoing conversation between if that will prevent sex crimes, for instance, or, or not. And in a way, uh, they claim that by objectifying uh, the female body, as uh, also as a robot, they are actually perpetuating uh, these uh, stereotypes of, of female body and actually um, creating even more gaps. But not only that, also they are looking into the sector itself. For instance, in the UK, only 9% of the engineers' uh, jobs are uh, done by women. Most of them are men. So these uh, questions about heteronormativity or like many bias that are embedded in uh, the, you know, the, the workers themselves and the way in which it's not a diverse uh, workforce are also implemented in the way in which we design not only sex robots, but in general, uh, many of the automated spaces that we have seen from the ones that Femke has shown to the automated spaces in the port, to the greenhouses, etc. But what, what's interesting, and we are finishing now with that, is that if we go back to this utopia of uh, constant, of this uh, completely automated uh, world that will allow us to have a leisure-oriented society, we see that in the last paintings, there is something, there are bodies that you can see them more clearly. And it's a female body, as it's a female body that nevertheless is somehow connected to an electrical cord. So we don't know exactly if it's a human body or is uh, another type of body, but we, it is a body. And it's definitely you can have different uh, uh, idea that could be a body that is a woman or uh, could be. So Thinking about it, uh, this idea of the society, maybe this utopia based on automation, uh, what we try to argue is that it's always based on the exploitation of the other. It's always, it doesn't matter if it is the body of a machine, in this case the machines that are serving the humans uh, organized around leisure, but there is always the, the exploitation of the other as part of this utopia. So what will mean uh, for New Babylon, for instance, to be organized not based on any type of exploitative relation with the other, where it is, will be a female body or will be a, a machinic body or any type of body that will be rendered. Um, just to finish, this is an image of the door of no return. Uh, artist uh, and curator Amal Allah, also from the Netherlands, is, is looking into these spaces 
from, uh, from which many uh, people were um, transforming and enslaved and, uh, and taken through the so-called new world. And so these spaces are uh, places of transition. And the way in which Ahmad al-Haq and uh, many other thinkers position these doors are a space of transition that are also uh, spaces for acts of resistance, in which even uh, these lives were separated from the former histories and the former spaces and entering a space that could be seen almost as a science fiction. So it's where the idea of the enslaved body and the cyborg somehow come together in one possible body and entity that at the same time has ideas of possible utopias uh, as well. And I leave it there. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. That was a, a beautiful transition from, from the body into um, how uh, the increasing reductionism um, affects our bodies and then in turn we, our, our bodies, you know, the, our collective body, and react to then affect that reductionist context as well. So um, a beautiful move on from uh, the first talk. I now invite Nina to respond. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you to Femke and to Marina and Katia for the presentations. Obviously, I'm not an architect. I'm a writer and thinker, whatever that means. Um, so I don't have a case study, but I'm going to raise some general issues about automation and feminism um, that will hopefully relate to the, the actual work <laughs> that's going on here. Um, this is a bit of a strange place to start, but I've lately become incredibly obsessed with, uh, with witches and uh, the witch hunts, <laughs> which happens. And one thing it's really interesting thinking about the sex robots, right? So or sex dolls, whatever we want to say, they're glorified sex dolls at this point. But is that this kind of idea of uh, the image of perfection in a certain way? Because if we think about the witch hunts, you know, the mark of the witch, so the idea that you could tell a witch by the fact that she had blemishes, right? And so you'd shave her entire body and you would find like a scar or a mole or a mark, and it would be that that would indicate you know, that she'd been marked by, by the devil. And especially if you touched this point uh, and it was insensible, like it didn't hurt, so you, but you'd basically be jabbing her, right? All over, causing a great deal of pain. And I was thinking about this in relation to the kind of question of perfection, really, and the question of desire. Um, and, you know, in a way, when we're talking about sex work, we're talking about the sex doll, you know, it's, it's to say, I mean, this is overwhelmingly um, or very largely a, a kind of very male model of desire. And I suppose there's an interesting question about whether automation, whatever we want to say about it, how it might relate to a rethinking of female desire, right? Which we might say, well, how, when do we ever really think about female desire or what it is? <laughs> you know, and how might it kind of intersect with, with automation? And I suppose, so that's more like a question to, to open up. Um, I think in general, when we, when we think about automation, I mean, we have to kind of understand what it is in, in a certain way, you know. I mean, obviously, it's the port, it's algorithms, it's, you know, the domestic labor-saving so-called appliances. They don't actually save time, you know, actually, um, in practice. Um, we also have to ask this very big and important question, a kind of environmental or ecological question, which is, you know, what's the model of energy that is being you know, thought about here, when we talk about automation, it's not just the raw materials of production, you know, machines making machines, robots making robots, but, you know, it, it's profoundly unsustainable if it's based on an image of fossil fuel, 
you know, energy? And I think this is a huge, huge question. And we need to kind of ask as a society or collectively have a really public <laughs> discussion about, you know, who, what, why do we want automation? Like, who is it for, in a sense? Of course, we're already in it, you know. We, it's not that it's something to come, right? We are, you know, that's where we are and that's where we're going. But, you know, th there's got to be this kind of reflection about the extent to which, you know, do we really need, like, robots making ro robots or, you know, <laughs> ad infinitum? You know, there's something kind of terrifying about it, you know, not just ecologically, but also from the standpoint of consumption. You know, like, do we, you know, what do we want from these machines, you know, and what might they want from us? Um, I suppose, that, you know, again, this is one of the topics that's come up already. It's really this question of the future of work. Um, you know, in the sort of Keynes and others in the 20th century were, you know, the, the, the problem was going to be too much spare time. You know, how, how do we deal with leisure, you know, as you put it? Um, and it's, it's kind of curious because obviously we've seen that, that actually, you know, the working day hasn't particularly shrunk in general, you know, despite computers, despite all these things, you know, they kind of generate more work if you're lucky or unlucky enough to have a job. Um, but we have to think uh, very carefully about the future of work and the extent to which if we are committed to automation, if we, but, you know, if that's where, where, we, where we're going, um, what can and can't be automated? You know, so lots of people have this kind of sort of almost, I don't know, technophilic kind of fetish for uh, full automation. You know, like we can fully automate everything and some of these people are my friends, but they're wrong. Um, but, and... But it's, it's a very, very important feminist point because, and a, and a social and collective political question about, okay, well, what are those things that can't be automated, or at least as a society or a culture where we might have reservations? So something like, uh, you know, the maintenance of life, you know, so looking after people, so care work, you know, when, you, when we're caring for a newborn uh, or an elderly person or a sick person, you know, what, to what extent is it desirable or even possible to automate these, these human relations, these social relations, these forms of care? You know, it, it seems, of course, we can say, look, there are care robots in Japan, you know, great, you know, aging population. But, these, but in a sense, there's something also profoundly tragic and very, very sad about this, I think, and this is a very humanist point to make, and I am a humanist, and, you know, that, that actually these things solve a problem if you like, but they don't really solve it. They generate loneliness. You know, what a surprise. <laughs> you know, that a robot isn't the same. It can't replace kind of human social relations in that way. And we wouldn't want necessarily to give uh, certain kinds of care work, I think, to robots, you know, even where we could. And I think that's maybe my, one of my major points. But if we think about I suppose, going back to the question of work, if we are able to kind of eliminate um, vast ways of, let's say, unattractive work, perhaps, we do still have this problem of leisure or uh, unemployment. And obviously, lots of people, when they talk about automation today, will talk about, well, we also need to think about universal basic income or something like this, a citizen's wage. You know, how do we actually keep the kind of economy going even when there isn't work? anymore, let's say. Let's, let's take the hypothesis of, of full automation in a certain way. Um, and this is a very tricky political question as well, because, 
you know, universal basic income. So the idea that everyone would, would get a certain amount, you know, from the state, say 10K a year or something, right? It, it, on the surface, it seems quite attractive. It's particularly attractive perhaps to people who are creative or, you know, want to spend their time drawing or reading or writing, you know. So it does appeal to uh, lots and lots of people. Um, but we have to, I think, be very careful because universal basic income and all of these sorts of proposals are not straightforwardly progressive. You know, if anything, if you look at the referenda on some of these in places like Switzerland, they narrowly voted against it, in fact. Um, but it was precisely on, on kind of, you know, xenophobic grounds that they re refused it because it was kind of like we don't want to give it to uh, people who are not Swiss. But we can easily imagine a scenario in which a government will say, right, we're going to give our, all of our citizens UBI or some form of wage, but we're going to close the borders, you know. And I think, I think we have to be, you know, extremely thoughtful and careful about what UBI in a kind of capitalist, you know, border-heavy world would look like. You know, it's, it, I don't think it's necessarily uh, as progressive a solution, even where it's supported by green parties and so on, as we might, uh, as we might think. Um, and I suppose to think about this question of, of care, you know, and the extent to which we can kind of um, automate our own bodies, actually, if we think about technophilia. I mean, there is a strand of kind of feminist thought in people like Shulamith Firestone, for example, who, you know, in the 1970s, uh, early 70s, proposed that the solution to the problem of female biology was technology. And actually, she was enormously prescient in thinking about reproductive technologies um, that would come about. And she, but she, what she thought is that those technologies would kind of revolutionize the family, that they would kind of get rid of um, the oppression that women have historically suffered on the basis of biology. You know, so she's very kind of, you know, it's a very somatophobic, to use Elizabeth Spellman term, you know, body-phobic um, position in a certain kind of way. Um, but, it's, but she's also enormously attractive to lots of people today who are thinking about, from a quite technophilic point of view, you know, when we think about things like artificial wombs, you know, the desire for these sorts of things, you know, I mean, I don't think they're particularly, um, it's not going to be very, very easy to, to make art. It's extremely difficult, uh, in fact, but people have this as a kind of horizon of a fantasy, you know, possibility. What happens when we dissociate uh, women from reproduction in a certain way, just as we might think about the sex robots, what happens when we dissociate uh, bodies from, from sex in that way and we replace them with artificial or, you know, I mean, they're just kind of glorified. I was going to say something really rude there, but you know what I mean. Um, so I, I think there is that question of desire then. I'm like circling back to this thing, really, and maybe this is a question to go back to, to all of you. I mean, you, you all kind of addressed it in a certain way, like Femke talking about the kind of, you know, the desire of technology itself, you know, the kind of, uh, it's in the long tradition of thinking about uh, anatomy and the division of the body, the kind of separation and parceling out of the body, um, you know, and the kind of implications of, of, of that. How do we kind of, I don't know, sort of rehumanize technology in a certain way? And I suppose I'm very, very interested in that question, as naive as it, as it is, right? And I, you know, I'm, I, I sort of worry about some of these like transhumanist or posthumanist trends that see in technology, whether from a feminist point of view or just a general kind of technophilia, you know, where, where is that going, really? Um, you know, and I think, 
when I walk around the city and we hear all of these kind of pre-recorded, often female-sounding voices, and I'm very obsessed with this, I write about it all the time, you know, when we listen to the tube announcements and they're kind of, you have that concatenation, so where you have the, the blocks which are algorithmically put together when they're kind of announcing the train times, you know, your train will be 57 minutes late. Um, and this kind of thing. And like, so we already live in this kind of disembodied, you know, think of Siri, these kind of intimate technologies and the kind of sexism of the sort of secretary, the, that model sort of perpetuated in all of these personal assistants. You know, it's, that technology is already highly gendered in very, very specific ways. You know, why is it this female sounding voice? 70% of recorded voices in Britain are female sounding. And, you know, there are lots of kind of ways we can think about that. And I try to think about it in terms of soft coercion, this phrase whereby we're not being told what to do by an authority, but we're kind of being shaped. You know, we're moved around the city by these sort of slightly, um, I don't know, chrome, but sort of nanny-ish voices. They're kind of like teachers or governesses or mix of this, especially in England, you know, it's very, ugh. and, but we're kind of, you know, being kind of ferried around by these disembodied voices the same time as we're looking at these voiceless bodies of women constantly. So you have that kind of complete separation um, of, you know, the image and, the, and the, the body, the woman. And that's, you know, in a way, our, our visual and sonic city spaces are kind of entirely composed of this. And so, again, I mean, just to put it back to you, you know, is there a way of kind of thinking about... I mean, obviously, in the kind of sex work example, it's, you know, it's more, I don't know, interesting in a way. You have the visual framing of the woman in the window, you know, but what is, what is that image there as well? You know, it's a silent image, perhaps. <coughs> You know, I mean, I guess maybe people speak and call that, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I suppose these are all really kind of questions. And, I mean, one of the things, if we think about having free time, you know, if we do think about automation and, and you know, of course, and it won't be free time for everyone, right? <laughs> you know, we have to think about the very asymmetrical way that automation will be, uh, is, is being applied. Is perhaps, you know, A, what would we do with this free time? Would we start to revalue something like care? Would we, in fact, degender it? You know, like care work has, has typically been unpaid, badly paid, racialized, gendered. You know, it's the kind of the work that everybody needs. Like we all depend upon it all the time. You know, we're, we're highly vulnerable beings. You know, we need a great deal of care. We're the most sort of extraordinary mammals in the sense we, you know, 18 years or whatever, you know, to kind of grow up. And even then we're not, we're not I'm not grown up. But, you know, the, <laughs> you know, we, we really require a lot of kind of attention. Um, and I wonder if, you know, maybe to finish on maybe a utopian or optimistic note is something like, well, would we revalue those bonds? Would we actually think, well, no, care is, in fact, the most important thing we do. You know, it's valued the least at the moment, but if we revalue it, you know, give it status, you know, think about actually how lovely it is to look after somebody or look after each other, look after ourselves, you know, to kind of take care of one another. You know, and that might be one way of kind of, I don't know, shifting things somehow. That's it. Excellent, thank you. <laughs> uh, many, many questions raised there, and I will try and, uh, we will try and address a few of them in the discussion. Um, I'd just like to invite Susan um, to give a brief response. Great, thank you very much. Um, obviously, lots of material has already been put on the uh, table, so to speak. Um, I'll just make a few short comments, some of which... I think come out of the fact that the, um, at the Centre for Research Architecture, we've been running a year-long project called Logistical Nightmares, primarily with the MA students. And in fact, uh, 
just came back from Rotterdam last week where the students were doing field work in the port of Rotterdam as best that they could. And if, um, we started, probably where many people start when they go to the port in Futureland, <laughs> the, which is also the de facto visitor center. But um, what struck me in the presentations this evening and uh, beginning with Femkes as well was the ways in which when you, you go to some of these contemporary sites of automation, like deep water ports, they exist, of course, uh, London Gateway here in the UK, Felixstowe as well. Um, this kind of massive infrastructures of automation, which there's, there's no question, they're very, they are fascinating. And you're confronted with a kind of imaginative register that is operating at a, operating at a scale that is avowedly not about uh, the human, in fact. Mm. Uh, that's very kind of clear. And so, um, but the presentations tonight um, also reminded me of the ways in which these contemporary infrastructures, to some degree, they also kind of mask a long history of, of subjectification, of automation vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, as, as you've said, of, of bodies of others. Uh, um, so there's, I think, an interesting, um, tension to explore with when we look at these contemporary sites with and they have a very specific if we think about ports in particular how many artists have been uh, fascinated by the container as a kind of as a mm -hmm. as a geometry of uh, that embodies uh, the fantasy of optimization of global connectedness etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a kind of very it's a very powerful aesthetic um, aesthetic kind of image, the cargo container ship. And of course, we might think about films like Noel Birch's and Alan Sekula's The Forgotten Space uh, and, and, and many others. Um, so, that, so I think on a, there's, the, there's also the aesthetic challenge that I think some of these spaces um, uh, really, uh, I think, really throw up at us. I mean, when I look at those images of the glass greenhouses in the Netherlands, etc., it's like, what would be an aesthetic, what would be a, an aesthetic language appropriate to, to a kind of, to challenging those spaces because there's such a kind of mastery in, in, there's a very powerful aesthetic kind of language that operates across those kind of domains. And it, it, I think it's very hard, even when we're thinking about the concept, when we're thinking about the question of feminist futures, to imagine modes of resistance because uh, people will sometimes say, well, okay, how do you stop the global supply chain from functioning smoothly, from translating between different kind of geographies, different kinds of uh, uh, spatial and economic kind of conditions? Oh, blockage. But blockage is just another place where capital will extract kind of value when the supply chain breaks down. So resistance can't be configured around a kind of interference with the smooth flow of capital because that just becomes, as I said, another site uh, for the production and extraction of kind of value. Um, yeah, and so, the, so that would be my question for the, the panel was, would be to, you know, what strategies of resistance, what strategies of aesthetics might be um, appropriate to challenge, to, to actually intervening rather than simply diagnosing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Excellent, and I welcome just one final quick comment from Grace before we uh, enter the discussion. 
I think I'll switch it on. I'm really grateful to, yeah, um, to be part of this conversation. So my master's project was actually about um, the impact of automation on a potential kind of speculative housing project um, in which I guess the housing project itself became a kind of the embodiment of a woman or a female in some way. And I played on lots of, I guess, like as a critique of domestic labour and looking at the home as like the one of the most like, long-serving places of work. The National Office for Statistics actually put a value of like the value on domestic labour last year, which was um, like 1.1 trillion pounds, which is like an insane, insane not intangible amount of money. Um, so I guess the point of, well, what I was trying to get up with my project was I guess reviving the conversation about the often very cliched side of the home um, in the context of talking about the workplace and kind of talking and saying that this is kind of like intrinsically linked. So the domestic doesn't necessarily mean the small scale, it can apply to the whole city. Brilliant, thank you. I think that's um, certainly something that we can feed into, into the conversation. I am now interested in how we're going to manage um, a panel of such wonderful, uh, thoughtful uh, uh, contributions. I'd like to, I think, uh, pick up on that challenge that we got, which was to understand how we actually moved towards acting and activism and um, solutions. So we have clearly, all of us has touched on a narrative that um, we have a masculine framing of the world, we have a, a masculine training, particularly technology and um, science sectors, which says that you can reduce things to their component parts and you can therefore uh, and divorce them and separate them and then solve that problem that you've um, uh, uh, framed. Um, so even the idea, I think, of, of problems and solutions is a potentially masculine framing in, in itself. So I'd like to wind back to Femke. It's been a little while since we've heard from you. Um, <laughs> to, to ask you, what, are the, what is the one intervention that you would like to see us as a community starting to um, act on today? <laughs> The one. Uh, I think it's many, but um, I think one of the things I see happening is that uh, it will, that we requ it's required to somehow act together. Uh, these systems are massive, so to even understand uh, what is going on requires collaboration between many different uh, people that have something at stake. So that's first. Uh, then it's somehow refusing um, to accept that they are too complicated to, um, uh, for us to speak back to. That's the second thing to do. Um, and then once you're there and you have enough uh, courage, uh, actually start to intervene. Intervene in um, the way things are framed, uh, automation is framed, uh, the way um, interfaces are working, uh, the way software is being made, um, the way it operates on situations. I think there's much more you can do, uh, and that's maybe in a, uh, first in a small scale, for example, uh, could you hook up your energy, um, smart energy devices uh, in a group of people and try to manage your the uh, heating of your house together instead of feeding the data uh, to your um, um, energy supplier? Uh, could you deal with uh, mobile bikes in your uh, in your city that are like hanging around in your city in a way that uh, you can somehow uh, take care of that uh, together? I think there's practices that come through uh, collective and are not uh, technophobic, but also not 
uh, technophilic <laughs> uh, at the same time. Uh, and some humor will help too. <laughs> so I'll take on your first challenge and pass it to Marina. The, the first challenge was to, to act together. Um, so I am listening, I've been listening to this panel with an ear also of um, the engineering community that I am trained in and come from. And um, I'm aware that the language and the philosophies that underpin the conversations that we've been having um, is, is not a professional language that can be understood by engineers. So in what way, oh, all engineers, um, sorry, not all engineers. Um, so w what are the first steps in us being able to table this dialogue? How do we start to understand each other and come together really? Probably that's a better question for Femke. I think um, I'm more operating in a more cultural realm, um, not necessarily in solutions, I might say. Um, but I will put an, an example that might, might connect to your question. So one of the teams that is working with us uh, actually is based in London, uh, Matthew Stewart and uh, Jane uh, Chu. They launched something that is called the Institute of Patent Infringement. And they are claiming that companies like Amazon are actually monopolizing the, you know, these uh, futures of automation by uh, designing and uh, having the patterns of the future automated spaces and the spaces of work of the future. So it's question to also about what Susan was saying about the aesthetics. What could be the language that we use? So they propose to appropriate the language of the patterns and instead of being something that is restricted and protected, use it to hack it and imagine how to subvert those spaces and make them work under different logics. So it's somehow using the language of the engineer um, but by maybe non-engineer and imagining how these spaces could be otherwise. So that, that could be a, a, a way. I don't know if it's probably um, speculative, but it's still. But I, I may say that I was interested also in the question about desire. Um, the reason why we brought constant is that somehow shows that we have to recognize that we have a deep desire for violence, for domination of the other. So until we don't change that or acknowledge in a different way, most of the systems in which we organize ourselves are always based on some care, but also at the expense of subjugation and domination of other, whatever that other is. So I agree with Susan that maybe the question is, I don't know if it's possible to you know, reorganize the world about around different logic because to me, even thinking about what that mean and non-exploitation, <laughs> but when I mean non-exploitative bodies, I mean the earth, I mean the machines, I mean any type of uh, animal or a human, any type of uh, body. No? So that that to me will be, I don't know how what would be a solution, but will be a, a gaze, a different gaze to which to look at the question. Not that much about automation and what to do with our leisure time, but rather, do we really want to have automation, meaning that that is still exploiting others, using the energy of other people in order to liberate us from that? Yeah, I mean, I think in, the, in that question of violence, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, when I'm talking about care, 
I mean, I don't just mean, oh, you know, I, I mean, care is violent too, right? And, and you know, when we, when we are looking after somebody or looking after each other, I mean, the, the possibility of violence is, is permanent, right? And if you think about an action, I don't know, a child running across the road, you grab their arm, yeah? Like, this is a violent gesture, but it's also a caring gesture because you're protecting them. And so, we, you know, we have to think very, very carefully, I agree completely, about how we can reconfigure these aggressive <laughs> drives, if you like, and in relation to kind of care. And I, I mean, I do, you know, as I said already, but this, if we, if what this allows, if the, even just thinking speculatively about automation allows us to, to rethink care and violence as well, you know, then that's where we need to, to sort of begin and to recognize really that the history of, you know, capitalism is, is a kind of, mystification and obscuring of that care work of that work and the, i mean the other thing i wanted to say i, I, I forgot to mention a little bit we, you covered it with the chaplain image as well but like the automation of the human you know the way in which you know like amazon and all these places basically you know do create you know automated humans you know and with the masks as well you know and we have to think about the way in which automation has already shaped us yeah and i think then the question for me would be this question of free time. You know, what do we mean by free time, actually? Do we have it as a kind of a hope, a desire, when we've answered every last fucking email, which is impossible? You know, is there a time beyond that, right, that, that we imagine, that we kind of fantasize about? <laughs> you know, is it sleep? Is it, is it, you know, what's the opposite of kind of, of, of labor in that sense? You know, it's not doing nothing. Human beings can't do nothing, yeah? And I think then that question of kind of care, violence, and cooperation, and collective, you know, decision making, comes back, you know, with a vengeance. Yeah. Can I? Um, I'd like to uh, take that back to Grace and, and thinking mm. about about care and the, uh, and your experience of how that plays out spatially in the home. Um, and then I'll be allowing the audience to ask questions. So be prepared. Um. I guess it goes back to, um, I guess, well, where my project came from in, in that context is like taking the appliance and the idea of that trying to, that as a time-saving or a labour-saving device, um, which I guess was kind of then corrupted as a kind of consumerist um, kind of, I guess, like fantasy and like something that we should desire um, in the home as women. Um, and then it, yeah, I guess it just means that we clean our clothes, like we wash our clothes like three times a week instead of like once a week if we had to hand wash it. Um, so I guess um, this idea of, I guess, the home itself becoming adap adaptive or having its own personality in some way, responding in a way that a human would, is kind of key to that. I'll allow Susan to respond if you'd like, um, otherwise I will open it out to the audience. I wouldn't be able to say much in relationship to the question of care, to be um, perfectly honest. I suppose the only thing I would say is uh, there's a person I wish that was here tonight, which would be Luciana Parisi mm -hmm. and her work on automated reason, because I think there's a way in which Luciana's work in contagious architecture, yep. uh, and when Marina was talking about, you we both talking about violence, Luciana... Um, is arguing that automation has produced fundamentally new modes of thought mm -hmm. 
in the ways in which the visual has radically transformed our own imagination. We think differently because we have a certain kind of uh, visual kind of literacy. So in some way, to me, I think that also needs to be part of the, um, of the discussion is how has automation actually transformed our cognitive and perceptual kind of processes? Um, so it's not simply uh, under an analysis that looks at its application, but looks at its transformation beyond uh, I mean, it's kind of profound transformations, I guess, across all sort of uh, registers, including our, our the ways in which we think, because the ways in which we think determine the ways in which we will probably act, right? Absolutely. Um, we have time for a few questions. I have two questions, but it's cool if you just want to answer one because of the time and stuff. Uh, <laughs> one's really specific and one's really general. Um, the first one was for Marina. Um, you said at one point, I think, yeah, I think you said this, um, uh, something about the fragile bodily actions we perform in front of the machine render our bodies even more fragile. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that or give any like reading references or like any references <laughs> to this point because I just thought it was really poetic. And then the other question, which is more general, um, was and very hypothetical as well. Um, how do you think the city would look if it was constructed by women? Like, again, totally hypothetical. This is for everyone. Uh, I'd just like to ask you if you could comment on the idea of sort of socialist imaginary of the woman as worker rather than as reproducer of labor. And so things like uh, the, the socialist communal laundry mm -hmm. and daycare in which the woman is freed up to be a laborer rather than to be reproducing labor in the household. I also find it inspiring, and I actually it's inspired, inspired by Paul Preciado, and uh, that is writing a very beautiful piece about the fragility of the body in front of this neoliberal architecture of the skyscraper in the global south. And he's talking about this um, climber, um, that was climbing and was taking selfies from the skyscraper, the high rises, and um, and he, he fall, he fall and, and died while uh, while doing that. It was recorded, so it, it was an elaboration of this idea of um, how, in order to get visibility in today's contemporary world, bodies are rendered, are taking risks of their own life in order to get visibility and to even become image in front of the pervasive image of the architecture of the neoliberal city. So it was totally, so that's your reference. Um, Paul Preciado, totally recommended. Yeah. On the other, I, I leave it to you. Well, I can respond briefly to your question about the female city. I think I'm totally unable to respond because my education, unfortunately, is totally heteronormative. I mean, from the point of view of the School of Architecture in Spain, when I, where I studied. And all these years, I've been trying to unlearn many things that I learned there. But it was many years. I studied there for almost 10. So all were like the masters of architecture, Rafael Moneo, like, you know, the lights coming and the spaces and all that beautiful narrative. <laughs> And in the last years, I've been trying to think uh, in a different way. Um, but I think still my mental framework is very limited uh, 
platform. That's, so I think there's a lot of work to do in education and the universities. Please, do it. <laughs> so um, perhaps we can alter the question slightly as, as one view of a potential way that the city might be different if more women were designed in its or, or more feminine um, uh, thought processes were put into designing the city. Um, uh, and uh, a reminder of the other question is, um, is if anyone would like to comment on the um, socialist imaginary of the women of as worker. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I can speak a bit to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's certainly like if you look at kind of what Lenin and Colin Tai and others, you know, say about domestic labour as this kind of, you know, really, uh, you know, in, in their view, kind of grotesque misuse of, <laughs> of, of women's life and, and so on. And, you know, I mean, how that played out architecturally then is you get this design of these, you know, the, the kind of communal houses with like no or virtually no kitchen at all or incredibly tiny kitchens which played out very 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 badly later on um, because people ended up with like nowhere to make food <laughs> in a post-socialist <laughs> era but yeah I mean so this idea of collectivizing you know cooking uh, cleaning I mean it makes a great deal of sense right I mean it, it does seem kind of massively pointless to kind of reproduce that work on a kind of everyday basis and obviously the capitalist solution is to commodify that labor of course so you can pay someone to clean your house or whatever or you can take your dirty clothes and someone will wash them for you or whatnot you know there's you know we know there's almost no limits to what kind of can't be modified and sold yeah even care work, I mean, especially care work really um so i think yeah i mean it's 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 absolutely right that there was both the recognition or in, in you know in the early days of the soviet union at least of that kind of um you know that housework was drudgery it was it was a kind of the wrong kind of work if you like and that the socialist uh, future had to have both men and women working and I think yeah it's when we're talking about a kind of post-work era as some people do now you know thinking about leisure, leisure and free time and you know I mean it's a fantasy but let's think speculatively you know it, I, I think it's very important to go to that um, image you know the Soviet project you know in the early days at least you know to think about what that what that means you know the relation between work and then post-work you know but yeah, it's a good it's a good point. <laughs> um, can I say one tiny thing about the, the yeah. feminist city, the female city? <laughs> I, I think it would be uh, pink and uh, full of fake hair <laughs> and lots of candles and no, I don't. I think I think, but this is one of the like really tricky questions because, of course, you know, we we want to avoid essentialist answers, right? Um, you know, at the same time, is we we literally have no idea. Yeah, we can't. It's very hard to imagine. You know. Because it's sort of, you know, a, a retroactively historical impossibility in a certain way. I mean, I'm very fond of um, architects like Lena Bobardi, you know, and her kind of, uh, you know, Sao Paulo, the Modern Art Museum, where she, you know, deliberately, she said, I don't want to build a building that takes away more space than it, than it uses, right? So, so the, the building's above, and then there's the public space underneath for protest. And there's still protest. There's also a police box there as well. But... You know, and it's still a site of, of contestation and, and protest. And, you know, and I wouldn't want to say that's a specifically uh, female, uh, you know, type of architecture. But nevertheless, it's a very interesting kind of feminist response to the city and public space. You know, we might want to think about things like public lighting and safety and, you know, those sorts of mm. questions. Yeah. Very complicated, um, you know. But I, we, it's a good question because it's precisely unanswerable in a way. <laughs> yeah. MK, would you like to uh, attempt to answer the unanswered <laughs> Thank you for uh, summarizing, because it was a bit hard to hear from the uh, audience. Um, um, 
I don't know. I, I mean, just about the uh, a city imagined by feminists. I, I think that would be the one I was uh, would be interested in. Um, I think there's ways to think cities that make space for uh, different species uh, um, in this, at the same time. I think it would be interesting to. Uh, have other approaches to nature and culture in the city, and I think feminists are a good a place to go uh, for uh, thinking about these things. Um, I think automation could have a, there could be some smartness, uh, but uh, I think it's really important to, uh, if we think about leisure and about post-work, uh, to also understand that many of these uh, automation processes are the result of uh, capital going a certain direction and platform capitalism uh, taking uh, much of the, uh, let's say, the capital away from work and into another type of work, which is uh, data production um, that we then all engage in. So it's without questioning the sort of fundamentals of how uh, all this is managed and, and how these flows are going, I think, um, yeah, this this takes quite some feminists to make that city. Maybe it takes a collection of a strong panel of diverse feminists. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, or ten or something. Yeah, panels. <laughs> that should do it. Okay, just any final points? I really like the question about um, what would the feminist city look like. I guess Dolores Hayden tried to answer that in like her non-sexist city book in 1980. Um, but I guess it, women wouldn't just design for women, whereas men probably would. <laughs> I don't know, men maybe are more, have maybe been more inclined to design buildings that are, then aren't appealing to women in that way. And so I guess it would be more organic and it would be more interconnected. It sounds like you're picking up very much on the connected theme of kind of, uh, of the fleshy um, body rather than the disconnected um, reductionist. Yes, I also want to thank everyone for the responses and, um, and the questions. I was really intrigued by uh, Nina's example, or, or actually the, um, this idea of the, the voice and the body that are very separated and that we um, counter in, encounter in the city uh, almost every day. And also uh, Susan's call for new strategies. Um, maybe one example that uh, that will also be part of the uh, of the work body leisure project in Venice is the project by Noam Toran, and he is looking at uh, lyrics of worker songs. When you look at from the from the 1860s to the 1960s, when you read those lyrics, they're still so relevant today. Uh, and he's trying to work with musicians, um, so also other instruments, um, to make adaptations and covers. So let's think. Um, of all possible instruments. <laughs> oh, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we need a, a kind of collective psychoanalysis <laughs> of, our, <laughs> of our, just in general, um, but particularly in, our, in relation to, to like our desire and fantasies for often for technology. And, and you know, I agree with Susan's point completely in the, the way in which those technologies have already shaped us you know and how we kind of work that out actually and I think and I think I mean psychoanalysis aside you know there has to be a kind of strong public collective discussion right always about the impact of this technology it cannot be left to simply corporations to make these changes I mean they already do but to you know there needs to be a kind of open discussion 
about, you know, let's say the, the limits to automation, you know, what I was saying about care, you know, we need to collectively and, and humanly decide where we draw the line, you know, and then how we revalue what, what is important to us, you know, collectively, yeah. Um, I suppose my final comment would be, um, I think I'm intrigued with a lot of artist projects that are, they're trying to connect the dots in the face of a kind of fantasy of global connection, but uh, those dots connect uh, the sort of the dark economies, the all of the sort of underpinnings of these infrastructures, uh, their labor practices, and you know, scattered throughout the world, especially in uh, countries where automation isn't required because labor. Mm. Wage labor is so low, you, there's no point in no, automating, exactly. etc. Exactly, yeah. So I think it's the kind of th discussions that have been happening here about how we actually enlarge the f the scope of our analysis that takes into account a much wider array than simply the object of our mm -hmm. intrigue, if you will. So, yeah. Thank you, and finally, Femke. Yes, <laughs> um, as I like at some point realized that I was towering like gigantically uh, above you all, um, <laughs> it made me think of uh, scale and um, <laughs> so also because of the setup of the of the panel somehow uh, like one thing uh, computation can do very well is manage scale and uh, try to somehow think about scaling, um, so uh, um, software developers ask often, uh, does it scale? Um, and so I think um, a project to somehow work on is how you could do scaling, like crossing uh, uh, different scales in more responsible and let's say less optimized ways. So how could different scales, micro and macro, um, with the help of um, technologies, uh, be dealt with in more uh, sensitive ways. Certainly, then also, you know, reducing our passion for optimization and uh, through technology and broadening it out to other parts of our experience of what we might want to try to collectively do as a human race and beyond. Um, so it just leaves me to thank you all and thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.